Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Okay, the numbers are rapidly piling up, so as we have people zooming in from various countries around the world, let me say good morning to some of you and good evening to the rest of you. I'm Jan Barris, Vice President of the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, and I'm delighted to welcome all of you no matter what time zone you're in. And I'm particularly pleased to be moderating today's event as I know all three of our speakers and have great admiration for, for each of them. As you have their bios and presumably have read them, I'm not going to um, go into great detail, but rather introduce them quite briefly in the order that they will speak, because we want to leave as much time as possible for our discussion. Arunab Ghosh, a Harvard historian of 20th century China, interested in social, economic, and environmental aspects of the relationship, is a relatively new friend since we just met last year when we selected him to be a member of our latest cohort of public intellectuals. But it was clear right from the beginning that we were going to be very proud of him and we're really delighted to have him as a PIP fellow. I was privileged to meet uh, Nirupama Rao over a decade ago when she very graciously uh, hosted over the course of a couple of years, hosted three different uh, groups of PIP fellows in her residences to a wonderful Indian meal when she was ambassador, first in uh, India's ambassador to China and then India's ambassador to the United States. She has also been India's foreign secretary and its high commissioner to Sri Lanka. And on top of all that, she is a wonderful poet and singer. And then Shunding Li, uh, Professor Shun as uh, both a professor and former executive dean at Pudan University uh, at its Institute of International Studies. He's the former director of Fudan Center for American Studies and one of Shanghai's top China hands and international specialists. He is an old friend of over 30 to 35 years. And we spent a lot of time together at various conferences and track through dialogues. And I am really pleased that our friendship has weathered not only the intensity of some of those meetings, but also the ups and downs of US-China relations. We are honored to bring the three of you together uh, to share your, your views on the long simmering, recently volatile and potentially very dangerous border tensions in the Himalayas. We have, we're asking each of our speakers to make some brief opening remarks of about, um, not, not to surpass seven or eight minutes. And we've asked our historian Arunab Ghosh 
to provide an overview of Sino-Indian relations, but not just relying on history, but also some of the sociological and cultural aspects of this complex relationship. And then we've asked Ambassador Rao and Professor Sun to lay out the perspectives of India and China, respectively. After that, we will have a brief discussion among our speakers, but we do want to leave time for ample, ample questions from our audience because it's a very knowledgeable one. We're very pleased to have so many, a mix of um, people from, as I said, various countries, various continents, and we welcome all of your questions. And with that, I'd like to turn it over to Professor Ghosh. Great, thank you so much, Jan, uh, and uh, thank you to the National Committee. It's wonderful to be here with uh, Ambassador Menon and Professor Shen. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna try and make uh, four very brief points uh, as a way of sort of uh, setting up the, the discussion. I won't go into too much detail about uh, uh, what, what's been happening right now. I think we'll hear uh, about that from both Ambassador Menon and Professor Shen. So what I'd like to do is first uh, <clears throat> describe to you uh, what I see as sort of the broad frameworks. There are two dominant frameworks, I think, that inform the way in which we think about China and India. Uh, sort of one that's uh, largely driven by civilizational comparisons and the other that's driven by realpolitik. Uh, then I'll give you a sense of <clears throat> what I see as being um, some very interesting symmetries and asymmetries in China and India today. Uh, then I'll talk about uh, what I see as uh, something that complicates uh, the, the situation, which is uh, the poor level of general awareness in China and India, sort of mutual lack of awareness in China and India which I think exacerbates uh, sort of the probability of, of, of things getting out of hand. And then finally, I'll try and bring the conversation to uh, the US a bit and, and reflect a little bit about uh, how some of this uh, might affect the US or how the US might be involved in some of this. Uh, so to the first one, sort of dominant frameworks. As I said, there are two dominant frameworks that sort of I think inform the way in which we think about China and India. On the one hand, you have the civilizational comparisons and on the other, you have realpolitik. And they're sort of divided, as you can imagine, uh, temporally, uh, civilization really focuses on 19th century and earlier. Realpolitik is what begins to become dominant uh, in the era of nation states, in particular uh, after uh, the creation of the Republic of China in 1912, but really after the Second World War, where it becomes much more about international relations and state-to-state -state relations. Uh, but the, but beyond, beyond sort of the temporal, there are other ways in which there, there are interesting distinctions. The civilizational takes much more seriously uh, an exploration of uh, cultural, uh, social uh, uh, kinds of connections. Uh, it's much more interested in uh, mapping out uh, sort of say, for instance, the history of Buddhism and the way in which it traveled from, from India to China over, over millennia. Uh, whereas the, the uh, realpolitik one is really much more interested in, in looking at interstate relations and where the border, border then becomes the primary sort of um, uh, focal point uh, there are aberrations, but the border really becomes a central sort of uh, focal point of this. Um, what's important in this framework is to recognize that each of them comes with significant blind spots. So uh, in the civilizational, what, what becomes a major blind spot is the actual messiness of the pre-modern uh, sort of pre-modern political history. So given that you have these all encompassing categories of sort of an Indic civilization and a cynic civilization, how do you then account for sub-regional polities that are often fighting with each other or are forming alliances with each other. And uh, I'll just give one, one example that's pertinent to, to the conversation today, uh, which is there was, there was a Tibetan invasion of Ladakh in the late 17th century, which also then drew in Mongol forces and Mughal forces. Uh, and uh, and a, lot of, a lot of sort of the fighting and, and where the negotiation ended up 
is relevant to where the border is being debated today. But the, the, those weren't really policies that were engaged. We, we wouldn't think of them as Indic and Cynic. These were, sub, you know, from today's perspective, sub-national policies that were engaged. So how do we sort of account for this in that civilizational framework, I think, becomes, becomes uh, somewhat, somewhat awkward. And of course, uh, the, the realpolitik uh, framework also uh, encounters significant blind spots, uh, which is that it, it sort of doesn't account for the, the tremendous amounts of exchanges that do exist between China and India in the 20th century across cultural, economic, social realms that are not just between the two countries, but are taking place in, in what you can think of as third countries or third places, places like Southeast Asia, and now increasingly in the US, which I'll come to, to at the end. Uh, so the other, the other interesting point, I think, in, in, in thinking about these frameworks is that as we, as we have transitioned from one to the other, there's been a neat slippage where our, the, the sense of this Indic sphere and the cynic sphere has mapped onto the modern nation states of the Republic of India and the People's Republic of China. So they have, in some ways, uh, you know, you can, you can talk about it as inheriting uh, imperial legacies. Uh, Jim Millward, uh, the historian of, of uh, the Chinese frontier, recently published, well, yesterday published, uh, an essay on Medium where he talks about actually the aggressive appropriation of these imperial legacies. So it's not just sort of something that was done passively, but very actively. And I think that again lies at the root of uh, some of the conflicts that we are seeing today. Uh, so moving on to the second uh, major point that I want to make, which is uh, to outline some sort of what I see as asymmetries and symmetries that are, that are interesting. So first, uh, just to outline a few major asymmetries, which were uh, sort of, these are, these are sort of trends that have diverged in the past 30 or 40 years. Things were sort of much closer if you look at most of these metrics in the late 70s, certainly in the 1950s. Economics, China is five times as large by in nominal terms, three times as large in purchasing power parity. The military is significantly larger and uh, seems to be much more advanced, especially when it comes to high-tech uh, forms of electronic warfare or other kinds of uh, AI-based warfare. Uh, social indicators have also diverged. Um, but what's interesting is that there are also divergence, divergences in the global ambitions, as you might, uh, as we might call them. Uh, and this is sort of most easily evidenced by uh, the Belt and Road Initiative that the Chinese state has been pushing for the past several years now. Uh, there's nothing comparable that the Indian state has, uh, let alone executed, even imagined. Um, and then there's an interesting other asymmetry that is, uh, you can broadly call it uh, strategic, where China enjoys significant advantage in, in advantages in geography, uh, which are natural, and then the infrastructure that they have built. Um, uh, and and it's, this, is, this, is, this is important because, uh, as, as I think uh, uh, has been pointed out by others, uh, China doesn't see India as the primary threat. So China, the way in which it, you know, it, it focuses its, its, its uh, militarization and, and its foreign policy, it's the US that is the primary sort of focus of a lot of this. And India, India is sort of secondary, whereas for India, China really has become the primary focal point for, um, for, its, uh, uh, for a lot of its foreign policy. So those are the asymmetries. What's interesting to me is that as these, as these trends have diverged, there's been an interesting sort of convergence in a somewhat surprising area. By my reckoning, politically, the two countries have not been this close since their founding in 47 and 49. And by that, I mean, in particular, um, the, the trends that we see in, growing, uh, in a growing and very aggressive ethno-nationalism in both countries, Han in China, Hindu in India, and you see this uh, particularly in, in, in recent times expressed particularly through uh, language politics uh, and the treatment of minorities. So whether it's Kashmir or Xinjiang or, uh, or, or Tibet uh, and, and even Hong Kong and then the language uh, policies in Mongolia and also in India. And then accompanying that is a crackdown on, on dissent and civil society broadly construed. Lawyers, journalists, intellectuals, activists, students, they're all under tremendous duress in both, both societies right now. 
uh, and this is accompanied by uh, a kind of technological utopianism, right? So uh, the kind of big data-driven uh, desire to, to, it's couched always in the language of delivery of public goods and services, but it is, it is essentially empowering the state and the state in conjunction with corporations uh, to have tremendous amount of control over people. So if you combine these trends, I think these symmetries are actually uh, uh, very interesting to observe. Uh, and, uh, and when you look at the symmetries and the asymmetries together, I think structurally we are, we are in a place where the possibility of poor decision-making is compounded. So I think it, it's sort of, it's, I wouldn't call it a perfect storm, but I think it's structurally leading to uh, the possibility of things becoming potentially much, much worse. And one of the things that is actually contributing to this, this is my third point, is, is the, the, the sort of lack of mutual awareness or, and in some ways the lack of actual mutual interest even beyond the superficial interest in, in, in sort of uh, uh, the border itself. And this plays out, I won't go into detail, I'm happy to, to elaborate if people are interested, but I think this rings true whether you look at the media, sort of look at the, sort of the kind of journalism that's produced on both sides about each other. Uh, it's true in, in scholarship. Uh, and it's also true in pop culture, the way in which then that this infuses a general perception of, of well, how the Indians think about China, the Chinese and the Chinese think, think about, about India. Okay, and very briefly on, 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 the, on the final point, uh, I want to, since this is the National Committee on US-China Relations, to talk a little bit about the US also. Uh, I think the, the, the obvious way in which the US has figured is, of course, in conversations about, well, is this going to push India into a more formal kind of arrangement with the US, where even if it's not a formal alliance, but perhaps a greater amount of integration uh, of, uh, say, um, military maneuvering, uh, sh sharing, sharing logistical details, uh, and so on. And I think this is, of course, a hugely important issue. It, uh, it, it brushes up against India's longstanding sort of commitment to being strategically autonom autonomous. Um, but again, this is something that I believe uh, my, my co-panelists are much more qualified to comment on. What I'd like to draw everyone's attention to is actually something else that I feel is interesting, but I haven't seen a lot of work on this and, and I would love to try and understand this phenomenon better, which is the role that the diaspora populations, the people of Chinese origin in the US and people of Indian origin in the US might play as these tensions continue to become, because I think the tensions are not going to go away. These are, these are now, uh, 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 something in the, in, the, in the short and medium term that's going to be part of international politics. So how are these very large, together it's about a little under 10 billion people. The Chinese uh, American uh, population is a little larger than the Indian American, but a lot of them uh, are, are recent arrivals. So they arrived in the US in the past 20 to 25 years. So their ties to their native countries are actually significantly stronger than people who say arrived in the late 19th century in the Chinese case, or even the Indians arrived in the 1960s, which was a major wave. At that time. So how this plays out, I think, will be, will be really interesting to observe, um, especially as we've, see, we've started seeing reports of um, um, the ways in which uh, money and, and influence is being exercised by political parties in India or China to influence politics in the U.S. Again, not, you know, the most visible, visible example of, of, of this, this point I'm making is, of course, uh, the potential future vice president of the U.S., but, but what I'm interested in much more is, is at a lower level, at that sort of local level politics, how this might actually affect uh, popular perception, public opinion, and then how that might filter into uh, U.S. foreign policy making. So uh, I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much, Arunab. That was fascinating and gave us a wonderful macro view of the situation. Uh, I'd now like to give the floor to Ambassador Rao. Thank you. Thank you, Jan, and thank you to the National Committee for inviting me to be a part of this panel discussion on India and China. 
it's wonderful to reconnect uh, with Jan and or everybody at the National Committee. Um, Arunab has spoken to, to you about the larger civilizational and uh, the present context also, uh, the setting for the India-China relationship, as it were. Uh, I'd like to speak about the bilateral context of this relationship, especially flowing from the recent events along the line of actual control in Ladakh, in the Ladakh region uh, of India. And uh, let me begin by saying that it is a season of change in Sino-Indian relations and uh, defined by crisis, and a crisis that looks like it's going to be a prolonged one uh, with no immediate end in sight. There have been signs of a shift, uh, more than a seasonal turbulence in this relationship for some time. Uh, the Doklam crisis, uh, which happened in Bhutan, uh, but Bhutan and India are treaty partners and uh, India is committed to assisting Bhutan in the defense of its sovereignty and territorial integrity. So when this Chinese uh, presence in the Doklam plateau of uh, southern, uh, the southern border of Bhutan, really, the south-southeastern um, border of Bhutan, south-southwestern, sorry, border of Bhutan was detected in the summer of 2017, Indian troops were also present with the Bhutanese to, uh, to defend Bhutanese interests. And that was a real cloudburst in the relationship. Tensions were at a very high point and the crisis took about 72 days to resolve. But it was an inflection point because today in retrospect with the benefit of hindsight, uh, I think you know things began to get more and more complicated in the Sino-Indian relationship from that point. We also saw the adversarial approach of the Chinese on the issue of UN sanctions against the Pakistani terrorist Masood Azhar, holding out on the entry of India into the nuclear supplies group on which the United States was one of India's most um, strong supporters. And of course, uh, what India sees as the misadventure of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, which snakes through territory in Gilgit, Baltistan and Kashmir, occupied currently by Pakistan and claimed by India. So there is a dispute. It runs along the, this axis of the China-Pakistan economic corridor, uh, enters uh, from Xinjiang into territory that is contested between India and Pakistan. And of course, there's been the prolonged unease in Delhi about the successful forays that the Chinese have made into India's neighborhood of South Asia outside Pakistan. And I'm talking of Nepal, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, and the Maldives. And unfortunately, no real panacea was provided by the two informal summits that Prime Minister Modi and President Xi Jinping held at Wuhan and Chennai in, in southern India in 2018 and 2019. I believe it was a case of spectacle overwhelming substance and the core instabilities that were straining the relationship remained uh, where they were. Now the unresolved boundary question between India and China uh, involves a continental space in, and uh, it uh, straddles a land border of close to 4,000 kilometers. 
uh, I'm giving you the metric length. Uh, uh, you can, of course, express it in miles also, which would make it, I think, about 2,500 miles or so. So even the length of that border is contested between the two countries. The Chinese say it's considerably shorter, uh, which deepens the fog, I'm afraid. And uh, memories of the conflict that India and China fought in 1962 had over the border, over this contested border, have not faded in India. So this, as far as India, is a live volcano which erupts from time to time. For decades, India never acknowledged that there was a dispute with China on the issue, referring to it only as a question, the boundary question. In recent years, however, the term boundary dispute has entered our lexicon, injecting a welcome dose of realism into the Indian perspective, as it should, given the fact that India sees China as occupying around 38,000 square kilometers of territory, which is about, I believe, 14,500 square miles or so of territory in the forbidding high altitude Aksai Chin Plateau of Ladakh. And Chinese maps show about 90,000 square kilometers of India's state of Arunachal Pradesh as part of what they call South Tibet. And this term South Tibet is a, is a term that has increasingly entered into the Chinese discourse uh, on the dispute in uh, recent years. It wasn't there before. Earlier they referred to the so-called illegal, I'm putting it in quotes, McMahon line, uh, which uh, defines the boundary in this sector of the border. Now, in recent years, as India has tried to match China's buildup of infrastructure in the border areas along what both sides call the line of actual control along the border, uh, the situation has changed and China, you know, has regarded these actions as threatening, uh, which they really are not. We've tried to uh, build better access uh, for uh, our personnel who guard the line of actual control uh, by improving infrastructure, by building roads in the area. And uh, I'm afraid the, the asymmetry, uh, as uh, you know, uh, people have referred to between India and China is also very pronounced in this area where we are nowhere near the level of infrastructure availability uh, and, uh, and uh, strength that China has built up on its side of the line of actual control. But what we have to make a, a note of is in the last, um, of, let's say, four and a half decades, since the October of 1975, we hadn't seen a single incident of bloodshed along this frontier between India and China until June the 15th of this year, when 20 Indian soldiers and uh, their commanding officer lost their lives in the Galwan Valley uh, in, uh, in a confrontation with Chinese troops. We don't know how many Chinese lives were lost. Some reports say uh, five Chinese uh, soldiers lost their lives, but we have no real uh, information uh, confirmed about uh, the casualties on the Chinese side. But let me just say that this incident has turned this line of actual control, uh, made it pretty kinetic, and the confrontation between troops of the two sides, and, and they've built up, uh, amassed, uh, personnel from both sides. I mean, there's been a buildup of troops on both sides since then. So uh, 
the situation is pretty fraught and you have three or four areas along the line of actual control where such confrontation continues. Now, since uh, the incident at Galvan, there have been ongoing diplomatic and military efforts to see whether we can achieve some disengagement. I'm not talking of de-escalation, that's completely different, but disengagement of troops between the two sides. It has happened to some extent in the Galvan Valley where you saw the bloodshed, but it's not happening in the other areas where there is confrontation. We are approaching winter and temperatures in Ladakh uh, usually fall to about minus 35 degrees Celsius in winter. That's really, really Arctic uh, type of temperatures. And uh, the troops are going to hunker down, I'm sure on both sides during the winter. And uh, we'll have to see how the situation develops. Obviously, uh, it is serious and uh, there appears to be no uh, satisfactory conclusion to, uh, to achieving the disengagement that both sides uh, want to see happen, uh, or at least India would like to see happen, a restoration of the status quo ante, uh, which existed in April uh, before this crisis began. And that hasn't happened, and there appears to be no sign of Chinese uh, willingness uh, to give uh, on that on that uh, front. So uh, let me say that Galvan was a crisis waiting to happen, a shared sense of acute nationalism, Arunab referred to it, coupled with the need to defend sovereignty as defined by each country, pro provided for the tinder waiting to be set alight. And the various agreements and mechanisms, you know, we had five such agreements and protocols between India and China from 1993 onwards to maintain peace and tranquility in the border areas along the line of actual control. And uh, those agreements have just fallen by the wayside. It would seem they had held very well until uh, the Galvan tragedy happened. And today it would appear that that entire superstructure of relations that we had built has been uh, rendered, you know, infructuous and, and weak. And they did, these agreements, unfortunately, didn't provide sufficient guard against the tragic events of the night of uh, 15th of June. We had an operating system, as far as this relationship was concerned, from 1988 onwards. It held for, for 30 years. And we developed relations in all fields, in trade and business-related interaction, people-to-people -people ties, even though the boundary dispute had not been resolved. We kept up the efforts to resolve the, the, the problem, but uh, we, haven't, we were not able to achieve any resolution. But that didn't prevent us from developing relations in other fields. But post-June 2020, I believe that this operating system has become largely defunct. And what was proven, I believe, that it lacked the resilience and the durability to withstand those shock waves that we saw happen at, at Galvan. So uh, the Indian government has taken various steps since then to kind of decouple on the trade and economic front, at least the investment front from China. Uh, I won't go into those details. I possibly am running out of time. But um, uh, the question of how to strengthen internal balancing vis-a-vis -vis China and also to strengthen external balancing, which is where our relations with the United States and 
and partners like Japan uh, and Australia and with the ASEAN, all that comes in. Uh, obviously, India uh, would like to uh, leverage uh, these relationships to the maximum extent possible to strengthen uh, its uh, ability to at least dissuade China from taking the actions that it has along the border. I'll stop here because I believe I'm running, I've run out of my time, uh, Jan, and I'll yield the floor to Professor Shen. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Professor Shen. Well, I thank uh, Jen and the National Committee for uh, inviting me to this uh, uh, panel. I'm happy to see Ambassador Lau again, <laughs> and also to be connected to Professor Gosh. I would like to make three points. First, the source of the problem. Second, our efforts, I mean, Indian and Chinese effort uh, to uh, make a peace. And uh, uh, this has not succeeded. Third, I was educated as a physicist. I have a PhD in hard science physics. How to simplify the very complicated body issue uh, to a simple issue? And I do have a proposal. I think that I can paternally, completely, eventually to uh, manage our border dispute. So it would not resolve the dispute, but at least I am sure with my formula, there will be no uh, loss of life uh, with young men of both country. First point. China India basically do not have a border life, except for the sector uh, where uh, Daklam was situ is situated. We, China India, have an agreed border line between India and China, and actually between the former Sikkim and China. That was made by Britain and the Qing Dynasty. China accepted. Even though it was unhappy, it accepted. And that was carried on by India, and China has uh, admitted that uh, Sikkim is a part of India to show China's uh, kind of uh, realism, to accept the reality. So to say China-India do not have any border, agreed border uh, area is not a fact. But uh, the narrative to say the two countries do not have a borderline applies to majority, the lengthy uh, area of their uh, connection. In East sector, China sort, the borderline should be, should be such that the entire South Tibet, or what India would call Arunachal state, should be on Chinese side of a final borderline. India said, no, 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 it should be Makmahun line. Makmahun line was a line, is a line, but which is based on Britain's unilateral invention without receiving Chinese government central government's official uh, approval by both Republic of China or People's Republic of China. But China still is interested in turning it uh, to a final agreed border 
based on some meaningful adjustment. On the west side, Indians think the borderline should make uh, Aksai Qing to be a part of India. And Chinese side think the borderline should make uh, what uh, we are calling uh, Ladakh a part of China. But these are not, not the case. So this is my first point. We have a huge amount of disagreement as to where the final borderline should be. The second point is that the two countries have made a tremendous amount of effort. I think uh, primarily through Lajif uh, Gandhi's visit to China uh, more than 30 years ago, almost 40 years ago, that the two countries have indicated their interest in negotiating. This stabilizing the uh, peace, security in the area of China-India and connection. This is border area without an agreed border. Then we have a very complex, ever-changing phenomenon, which is called line of actual control. China think this is my current line of actual control, but my ideal line of actual control should extend to where India has occupied. India thinks this is where they currently possess, but the ideal line should include where China has occupied. Every winter when the temperature, the weather challenge our survival, both countries may withdraw some personnel from the region, but the next spring they would return. So such a line, we have three lines for each side. One is my current line, second ideal line, and the third ever-changing line. Because next year I take, may take more, so it would be better than this year line, but still not perfect. India has their, their own three lines, altogether six lines. So when we say the two countries made agreement, let's keep the stability, peace in the area but how to legally interpret the agreed line of actual control? The two countries failed by this day. And even worse, they fought, they agreed not to shoot, but they can use a fist. Uh, it, it's, I feel very bad. Our young men and your young men using fist to kill each other. So Indians said that some 20, Indian, Indian lost some 20 young life. Chinese side have not announced. Why? Probably not to excite the Chinese. We lost more life. Or not to excite the Indian, and uh, because China lost less life. But uh, both countries may have lost some life. And uh, these young men should uh, cherish their life. They should live longer for their country. But their parents lost their sons, uh, uh, sister, brothers lost their uh, brother, and the kids may lose their father. It's very bad. I feel bad. For either Chinese soldiers and Indian soldiers, we are human. My final point is how to make a permanent area of uh, peace. We may never be able to agree to have a border, but how to turn an area of dispute to an area of peace? So I would suggest the following. China 
would propose the ideal Chinese intended line of actual control. That may uh, pierce into some parts that India has occupied. Indian propose Indian's ideal line of actual control, but don't tell us it should be a part of accession. Uh, uh, and we would not tell you it would be the, it would be the entirety of Ladakh to be reasonable and humble, to propose what will be our ideal line of actual control. But certainly these two ideal line would differ greatly. Second, make them an area because these two lines would not overlap. Then we define the entire area defined by the two lines as an area of dispute, area of dispute. Third, to make it a DMZ, demilitarized zone, like what existed for some 70 years between the two Korea. That place is very secure. Only animal would live there peacefully. Nobody would disturb them. But in our area of dispute, some local people, villagers, uh, would be still living there let them to live there and they would not be disturbed uh, uh, by any military people. Because in my idea, both countries should sign, honor the agreement. Both military should not enter this area. Probably some police would occasionally inspect or when the local villager would have some civil dispute, some police by Chinese side and Indian side may make a plan to join to, uh, uh, mediate and cut it a paper. This is not a permanent uh, zone of peace. This is a, a temporary uh, fix of an area of dispute to an area of stability, disengagement, and demilitarization. Let's say make it 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, verify Neither side would enter this area through our national technical means satellite imagery. And a private citizen can access to some uh, private satellite imagery. Some company may be willing to release the imagery for free. And using our drone, to, we would allow this drone to enter this area to take a picture and then we share the picture to say, you may have violated. And uh, I may have not violated. This is my proposal. Define a reasonable area of dispute. Turning the area defined by the different ideal definition of land of actual control into uh, a temporary area of peace, demilitarization. Let's, let's learn how to live with the new reality neither military would enter. Without entering, you have zero chance to see each other, to using fist, to shoot, to use, shoot a gun. You have no chance. Each side would be unhappy because this is my land, why I live? Because you ask me to live, I live. But the other side would do the same. Don't exaggerate the size of such a, an area of dispute. We cannot say entire 
South, South Tibetan entire Alu Natural should be under dispute, reasonable. This is what the two countries used to cut a deal to turn through negotiation to turn this uh, uh, line of actual control to a permanent border. But the tricky thing is that we do, do not agree with each other about where the line should locate. Then using our maximal different definition, drawing a circle, which is the area of dispute and withdraw each other's military from the area. And in case of need, uh, India may invite Nepalese, uh, Bhutanese to take a look. And we may take uh, some Bangladesh people to take a look. This is to assure each other's confidence that uh, I withdraw, I give concession, and you withdraw, you give your concession, and let can make uh, such a kind of meaningful concession for 10 years, 15 years. So I end my points this way. China, India should have the ability to learn to respect each other and to find a way. We do not need, need others to teach us. And actually, North Korea and South Korea have already been able to teach us. They don't have a war. Occasionally, one North Korean people may sneak into this dangerous place, maybe hit by a landmine. And we should not put a landmine because people are living there. We should make them to feel more secure. Thank you very much. Thanks to all three of you for very thoughtful and um, interesting presentations from which I think we can take away a lot of different things that I would, we, we have questions coming in, we have questions that were pre-submitted. Um, I have some questions of my own, but before going to those, I'd like to ask the three of you if you would like to comment on anything that one of the other of you has said. Well, okay. I think uh, we can, we probably in the question and answer session take up some points. Uh, uh, Professor Shen had some interesting points and uh, I, I think uh, both sides are agreed. I think both countries are agreed that we have to be reasonable, we have to be fair. Uh, we have to understand uh, that there has to be some degree of adjustment uh, when it comes to uh, discussing a solution, but that is really for the two governments. And Professor Shun, anything, any questions you have for either Professor Ghosh or Ambassador Rao? Uh, well, I appreciate Professor Ghosh's uh, presentation with uh, his uh, uh, great view uh, about uh, this issue and uh, how uh, he especially mentioned how this would impact uh, involve America. <laughs> especially President Trump has presented his vision Indo-Pacific. Probably that started at an even earlier time. And now the four uh, foreign ministers have met for the second round. China would not think this is a great thing, nice thing. It would make China more secure. But how to make a, such a kind of a, a, attempt uh, to liaise it with each other, to reinforce each other uh, in the area uh, to be unnecessary. I think China, India need to shake hands, respect each other, and understand each other's sensitivity. 
and take no first step for each other to be viewed as negative. And also, I hope uh, uh, Chinese leader and Indian Prime Minister Modi would listen to me, <laughs> uh, turning the different uh, interpretation of line of actual control into an agreed peace zone. This is not a permanent solution. This is a temporary fix. So for this, I appreciate the, uh, my two uh, 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 friends to uh, raise their issue, uh, uh, issue the Americans' uh, involvement. And also Ambassador Laos mentioning why, why China India may have different views as to the place, Dockland, should belong to. But uh, between China and Nepal, uh, Bhutan, there has been an ongoing dispute. That is something that uh, many of us, I think I should take, uh, where take a note of it. Thank you for mentioning this. Um, I, I find myself in listening to you, uh, Professor Shun, transported back to so many different track two dialogues that I've participated in when very thoughtful people, uh, generally retired diplomats, even some retired military, um, senior officials um, and academics are able to come together and just very reasonably approach these issues that are issues of life and death. And the proposals they put up, especially the one that you've just enunciated today, seems so eminently reasonable when you're sitting in a conference room with sort of like-minded people, even like-minded people with different backgrounds and from different cultures. Um, the trouble is, of course, in translating that into actual effect. But I, I think it's a wonderful idea you have. And as a colleague of mine just uh, texted to me, maybe we should send you to the Middle East and get the Israelis and the Palestinians to carve out that use your same plan. Um, but let me ask you some more specific questions. Um, so, Professor Shanai, you, you did a, a broadcast, uh, a podcast, um, uh, wherein, uh, for Merck's, uh, the, the German uh, um, think tank on China, um, wherein you and a, an Indian colleague, I might add, we're both very optimistic about this year, 19, it was in January of this year, and uh, this is the 70th anniversary, and it was supposed to be a very celebratory year between India and China. So what do you think took us, took the two countries off the track? Is it, you know, listening to Arunab and, and, and looking at the way the world is evolving in China, in India, certainly in the United States and elsewhere, nationalism seems to be taking hold to such a great extent. And, and a, a, alas, in many places, including India and the United States, unfortunately, a violent sort of nationalism. Is this what we attribute this recent flare up to? Is it just part of this violent nationalism that is overtaking the world at this point? Or are there other factors that cause this 30 to 40 year peace to suddenly be disrupted and turn violent? And that's a question to any one of the three of you or all of you to answer. Well, let me start. Uh, ideally for this uh, uh, year, 
70th anniversary of China-India establishing the official tie, Chinese side should be thankful to India because India was one of the earliest foreign countries that accorded legitimacy to the making of PRC. We thank our Indian friend. Uh, we should reflect why the relationship has gone through a, a twisted uh, path till this year. Why an ideal year of 70th anniversary uh, which has been augmented by the two leaders' reciprocal visit, informal meeting every year. We have created a new institutionalized informal meeting, but still that cannot uh, assure the permanent peace and stability around the border of uh, uh, the border area. The reason is that we are very nation state. China cares its own national interest. And uh, uh, our leader said, uh, we should not lose any point of Chinese land that belong to us, and we should not take any inch of other countries' land. That's great. We should not take any inch. But our definition is that this belongs to us. Therefore, we cannot uh, abandon. With the rise of Chinese capacity and uh, backed by Chinese nationalism at a social media age, so to show our uh, uh, Concession through negotiation may be viewed by the public as not legitimate. So, for many reasons, current China share sure its strength to honor the entire area which we think belongs to China. But India is at the same page. They are rising. Without COVID, they are rising very fast. And uh, uh, they also have a very nationalistic leadership. And they have a far more uh, uh, widespread uh, media environment, which uh, would avail all sorts of information uh, in their platform. So showing any concession to China at this time, especially on a, such a hardcore issue of sovereignty, would be beyond a, a, a imagination. I cannot answer your question. The, the sudden twist of the past is due to any leader's intent. I, personally, I would guess my President Xi Jinping is uninterested in seeing this. He wants to have a stability between China and India, which is good for China to build our economy, which would look good. So, so China's uh, neighboring relationship is uh, stable, peaceful, and can enjoy uh, the uh, prosperous. I would also highly suspect that Prime Minister uh, Modi uh, instigated this. But maybe some battlefield military people without authority, uh, they may have done something. And uh, even without ill intent, but uh, which can be interpreted by the other side as not a bold well. I do not know, but I think uh, uh, probably a combination of these things possibility uh, may explain uh, what has happened. But now how to revert, come to my formulation. Using the different, maximally different uh, drawing of the line of actual control to make a demilitarized zone, then withdraw. Devise certain 
uh, verification means, then honor our paper through certain institution. We can fix it. It's not very difficult. We need to have a good will to make a peace. I certainly uh, would, uh, would agree with Professor Shen when he says that both sides need goodwill uh, to make peace. I've often spoken of the need for a Himalayan consensus between India and China. And this idea of a demilitarized zone that, uh, that Professor Shen just spoke of perhaps uh, fits into, into uh, the realm of thinking on such a consensus. But it is an idea, it's, a, it's an interesting idea that, uh, that both sides would need to look at because our primary aim must be to diffuse tensions in this very, very fraught situation because neither side, I, I believe, uh, you know, wants this to be turned into a battleground between the two countries, because that will have enormous ramifications, not only for India and China, but also for the rest of the region. I don't believe, uh, you know, either government would like a situation of prolonged conflict between the two countries, which all the more points to the necessity that we need to sit down and arrive at some middle ground, because diplomacy is all about reaching middle ground. And in that context, I believe we need to be sensible, we need to be cool-headed, and nationalism certainly infuses the public imaginary in both countries much more than before. But this boundary dispute between India and China is a legacy dispute. It's a 20th century legacy dispute, which we see unfolding before our eyes today in the current situation. So it will require a lot of political uh, prowess and uh, far-reaching uh, perspective on both the sides of both governments to reach a solution. I don't believe we'll be able to resolve the boundary question, but I think the primary focus should be to see how we can ensure a regime that holds the peace along the line of actual control, not only in Ladakh, but also in the middle sector, in Sikkim, and in Arunachal Pradesh. Uh, so I, I fully endorse uh, uh, the spirit in which uh, Professor Shen and Ambassador Rao made their comments. Uh, but just a couple of uh, reflections on, on the question you asked about why, you know, why we, we had sort of the events of earlier this year. I think, again, uh, we can think of sort of the, the longer term trends that have been building up, I think, that create sort of the conditions or something like this. They don't, they don't explain necessarily the timing of it, but then, then that makes something like this likelier. And I think that really has to do with the, the broader divergence that we have seen um, uh, in terms of the, the increasing capacity of the Chinese state, where this becomes a kind of expansion that we are seeing more broadly that, that the PRC is engaging in across the world, not always militarily, of course, but in expanding its ambit, I think. So that's, the, that's one, uh, I think, contextual uh, sort of uh, thing that's important. In terms of the specific timing, though, I think uh, a couple of things have been already discussed a fair bit in the media and the press and, and by, um, uh, by diplomats and scholars, which has to do with, of course, the, the, the way in which the Indian state changed the, the nature of Jammu and Kashmir, which was a state in the Indian Union. It was changed into a union territory. That means it was directly governed by the central government, as opposed to having a, some kind of autonomy within a federal system. Uh, and Ladakh was made a, so uh, uh, Jammu and Kashmir was made a union territory and Ladakh was made a separate union territory. Uh, and that has definitely, it, it certainly uh, falls in line with 
what Professor Shen was saying in terms of how the Chinese perception would, would therefore be one of, or the response would be one of alarm in that this is a unilateral attempt to change an on the ground reality about something that they view very differently. Uh, what's interesting to me is not so much whether this was a trigger uh, or not, but uh, it's from my reading of the, the, the kind of discussion that we've seen in India, there doesn't seem to be, there doesn't seem to have been a, a sense in, in that this should be anticipated. That if we do something like this, how are we going to respond? So the, the kind of confusion we saw in, in, in May and June and July in India in the press and the way in which the government sent confusing signals, that suggests to me that this wasn't really thought through. If we're going to make such a major move, uh, which affects our international relations, how should we be prepared to respond? Because we should game out potential scenarios, potential sort of things that the, the Chinese might do. So that's one point that I think is, is, is somewhat interesting to me. The other is I'm curious about how much uh, uh, the assessment, again, I have no, uh, this is entirely based on, again, reading newspapers and following the news, but how much of the assessment of the Modi regime has changed on the Chinese side? From one that saw the regime as really uh, led by a strong man and really powerful to one that perhaps is not, is, is hollower than it seems. And this is something that uh, I would love to see more, more sort of work on because it's something that I, conversations have certainly anecdotally sensed where there was a sense of real, uh, sort of thinking of Modi as a Xi Jinping figure in terms of, you know, this is a strong leader who's gonna sort of move India forward to uh, a much more sort of, uh, uh, shall we say, less, less flattering sense of, of, of the Indian leadership that has emerged amongst a lot of, uh, I think, Chinese intellectuals uh, in more recent years. Uh, yeah, I'll stop there. If I can just say a word here about what Arunav said. Uh, well, um, yes, uh, you may have to probe how the Chinese look at the leadership in India uh, uh, further. But uh, let me say that um, if I look back at the last six years of the Modi government and its policy towards China, I think there was uh, a considered attempt to build bridges and to um, and to focus on how uh, a more political level understanding and trust could be forged between the leadership of the two countries. The second point is that the Modi government has been very, very restrained in its statements about the tensions with China along the line of actual control. Never mind how the media, the social media and the electronic media have discussed it and and the kind of very alarmist projections that they have made. But I think at the government level, there's been a great deal of restraint. It's been very measured. And I think uh, the government of India deserves some acknowledgement and credit for the, for the manner in which it has spoken of these tensions. Even if uh, you can argue, and I agree, perhaps there's need for more communication, more regular, more systematic communication on this issue in order to guide the public debate a little more, uh, you know, in, in, a, in a focused way and in a, in a more rational way, let's say. So I really would like to continue this conversation, but we did promise our audience that we would get some of their questions in. Um, and. Uh, let me turn to a couple of, of, of those. Um, two of them sort of uh, converge. Uh, one from Katrick, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, Kartik Raja, uh, who interestingly said he's an aspirant to be part of the Union Public Service Commission. Uh, and another from someone by the name of Bruce, who doesn't identify himself any further. 
Um, but both of them wonder if the resolution of the, of the conflict between China and India, um, because each side believes so fully in, in that they are right, as usually countries do when there is a dispute, um, are they going to be able to work it out between themselves or would it be beneficial or more beneficial for some intervention by the UN, by the International Court of Justice, um, by a variety of international institutions that might be able to offer some sort of mediation or assistance? I actually am, I'm on a vote for Professor Shun's uh, solution, but um, would both sides agree to some mediation or some assistance from outsiders? Or is this something that you think is only going to be resolved between the two countries? And can it be? Well, uh, I cannot represent my government. Uh, actually, my heart and brain are split. My brain say, and mediation is a way to uh, help cooling down the temperature. Uh, mediation, for instance, uh, a friend from Cambodia may visit India, may visit China, and to pass word. Actually, uh, we don't need such a person to pass. We have lots of channels to pass. But uh, he or she may propose some idea, which may be exactly or similar to what I have proposed. And uh, if India would propose, China would refuse. If China would propose, India would refuse. But if a common friend would propose, and we think this give us face, why not? But I presume my government would refuse. We are a major country, a major power. We are sovereign. We don't need any person to tell us how to do. We are very smart, we are very confident. So why we would listen to someone who pretend to be a friend, not from Cambodia, but possibly from uh, uh, Netherlands, Canada, or Australia. <laughs> Until two years ago, they still were kind of friend. But these days, some of them don't think China is their friend. And we think such a so-called friend may be partial may uh, propose something which would not be in the interest of our faith and of our tangible rights. Okay. And the Prime Minister Modi maybe may think exactly the same way. We are very national, we are very sovereign. Why do we need America to give hand? He would resolutely refuse President Trump to say, I want to help. So well, most apparently professor, uh, President Trump did offer to help recently, but uh, I'm not surprised that no one took him up on that. But uh, uh, Ambassador Rao, do you want to add anything to that? Well, I think at the level of the two governments, the approach would be uh, leave it to us. Uh, we will resolve this bilaterally. We don't need a third party to come in and advise us or mediate between us. Uh, so I don't believe that position will be altered. I think, um, you know, the fact that we have been discussing this problem, the boundary problem, in the current uh, era, let's say, since uh, the 1980s, from 1981 onwards, we've had uh, discussions relating to the boundary question. So we have all the skill sets needed, you know, to 
to solve this problem. Uh, I think it's a question of political will. Both uh, Mr. Modi and Mr. Xi Jinping are very strong, popular leaders in the country. And I probably, and I would, uh, in my estimation, think that this is the time for both of them to sit down and say, let us resolve this once for all peacefully. Uh, let's bring these negotiations to a, a, a reasonable, mutually acceptable conclusion. And I think that's where the effort should be concentrated. So. So uh, we shouldn't abandon the, that idea of these two strong, um, uh, very, very prominent leaders, personalities who enjoy a great deal of popularity and credibility in their own countries to sit down and resolve this. Um, Professor Sean, I'm sorry, Arnab, you wanted to say yeah, something? Just, just a quick comment. Um, Briefly. I, I, I sort of concur with what, what has been said in terms of sort of the, uh, the unlikelihood of something like that. But I just point out that uh, so I, I, we have to look at sort of all the cases that, that are like this where there's third party intervention. But the Korean case is interesting to think about because it actually came at the end of a very bloody war and a long then sort of military standoff. Uh, and I, my sense is that third party mediation really normally kicks in once you've actually, once things have completely broken down. Uh, and we are not there at this point. So I think it's structurally going to be unlikely for, again, these are two much larger countries uh, much more uh, economically, economically much larger, but also militarily much more powerful uh, for that that to be even possible. I think so. I'm very, I'd be very pessimistic of that kind of possibility at this stage. Uh, Professor Shun, in some of your comments, you mentioned COVID, and one of our uh, questioners, although it's an anonymous question, has asked how much the spread of COVID in both countries played into the recent ex uh, escalation. We know that India's economy has been hit very hard. Um, and so the, is this a form of distraction for uh, domestic nationalism or how has it played out, do you think, in relation to the flare-up? Um, anyone can answer uh, that. I can only speak for my country. China is domestically free of the COVID threat already. For 57 consecutive days, uh, there has been no report of a single case of COVID in China. We do have cases from international flights, passengers from other places enter into China and we test them and a few of them uh, may have been reported as positive and we would quarantine them. So we are free, which means uh, China is more able to do the things it wants to do. During the past week-long National Day holiday, so Chinese people go to every place and we have uh, booming tourism, people spend money. That's good for us to have this so-called internal kind of uh, consum consumption and circulation of economy. I don't know, I think uh, um, our, my Indian friend may tell us how Indian uh, what they perceive. Their situation of COVID may have something to do with uh, uh, their action around the, uh, the area of contact. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we need to move along because we're reaching very quickly our ending time. So let me ask Ambassador Rao, what do you think of um, how has COVID, if at all, played into this flare-up? 
I personally don't believe that COVID uh, was a trigger to what we've seen happening along the border. Uh, perhaps, uh, you know, the, the uh, onset of the COVID uh, pandemic and the lockdown in India, uh, in a sense, uh, took the attention off uh, the buildup that was happening on the Chinese side of the line of actual control. Uh, of course, I'm not, you know, a, an authoritative spokesman for the government, but this is what one picks up, you know, from the information zone uh, through the media. So there must, there may have been, uh, you know, some slackness there perhaps, and uh, which, uh, which did not enable a quick reaction to this Chinese buildup in the areas, uh, you know, which were seen as on the Indian side of the line of actual control. So there, thereby hangs a, a tail, as it were. But I don't think COVID uh, was a trigger to to the current tensions, or that it was a it was a it was a way or or a, or a, or a stratagem to take the attention off the COVID situation. I don't believe that. Okay, let because we are the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations. I do want to make sure we get in um, some discussion of the U.S. role in that. In, in the flare-up, if there was one. Um, but first, our, our president, Steve Orlands, has a question uh, and wants to know, will the ban in India on hundreds of Chinese apps, including TikTok, be reversed? And how damaging are these actions to long-term relations? And what's the reaction to uh, these bans in both India and China? Ambassador Rao, why don't you go first? Yeah, thank you, Jen. Uh, I believe that, uh, you know, in the wake of the Galwan uh, Valley tragedy and the huge public outcry and, uh, and concern and alarm about what had happened, uh, the whole atmosphere of the India-China relationship was eroded and was blighted as a result. And the government uh, really was left with no alternative but to look at these areas where you had seen a steady rise in Chinese presence in the technology sphere, especially because all this kind of investment in the technology startups and in the technology ecosystem had happened in the last three to four years. And the ban on the apps was announced in the wake of that. You know, the uh, I think the public uh, definitely uh, accepted it. There was really no outcry against being deprived of TikTok uh, as you would imagine, you know, given the high popularity that TikTok had in India, I think about 200 or 150 to 200 million users, I believe. But uh, the public has accepted it. And I don't see any uh, prospect of any uh, reversal of that decision. In fact, now the Indian government is looking at banning Huawei in the 5G space. They're looking at all the areas of national security that could be impacted by any Chinese technolo technological presence. So this is a process that has begun. But I think the greater challenge for India, if I may say, is 
you know, we have a huge trade dependency on, on China. You know, we have a huge trade deficit with China, but China has come into, you know, the active pharmaceutical ingredients that are used for India's pharmaceutical industry, about 70 to 80% of the APIs come from China. And if you look to the situation 20 to 30 years ago, much of this was manufactured in India. And why, and this is the story I think that, you know, is echoed in the United States. So we really have to look at our own systems and to see how we can build more self-reliance. Prime Minister Modi has spoken of a self-reliant India, but this process is going to take three to three to five years. I don't believe we should uh, cut our nose to spite our face. There are areas of dependency uh, on China, which probably will have to continue for some time. Uh, they, we can't completely, you know, cut the Gordian knot, as it were. But certainly the government is now looking at this whole uh, uh, sort of ecosystem and this whole sphere of, of Chinese uh, presence in India to see how uh, uh, a more rational uh, set of, uh, you know, uh, circumstances can prevail rather than what you have now. Arna? I could put a word or... No, thank you. Uh, just, uh, just to uh, uh, amplify something that uh, Ambassador uh, Rao mentioned, uh, which is really uh, the, the large sort of trade relationship that exists. And so much of this is really, besides pharmaceuticals, is manufactured goods. Uh, and, you know, there's been talk in the Indian press that as a global opinion is sort of uh, changing about China itself, there might be an opportunity for India to become sort of the, the world's factory. And, uh, one of the big challenges here is uh, really not so much than an emphasis on innovation and, and high tech research, but really uh, the real the disparity that exists in the capacity to become a manufacturing hub. And there's one index that I'll just mention, I think that's really important and very telling. Uh, this data is about 10 years old, but if I remember correctly, about 10 years ago, China had roughly 500,000 vocational training schools, you know, to train mechanics, plumbers, you know, sort of uh, staff at coffee shops, you know, that kind of training. By comparison, India had about 25,000. So that gives you a sense of the scale so that, you know, we can talk about, you know, we're going to step into the, the shoes of the, the next manufacturing sort of center of the world. But there are these kinds of capacity building challenges that really exist that complicate the picture. And I think we, need, we all need to take a page out of China's book on that if we want to grow our manufacturing capabilities and our innovation capabilities in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Um, Professor Sun, we really were over time by a couple minutes. Um, so is there anything brief that you want to add before I thank you all? Uh, one minute. Returning to the question about the TikTok. Uh, Chinese side and those company operating in India should understand Indian sensitivity uh, to defend its uh, data uh, security. But there is an alternative way, I agree with Ambassador Rao, uh, rather than uh, banning them, Indians should make a law. All data collected by those APP, domestic APP, foreign APP operating in India should not be transferred beyond the Indian's territory. And TikTok in India should if India would make such a law, TikTok should sign. If it refused, it would not be permitted to operate in India. But if it would sign and be verified often that it has not violated its legal commitment, TikTok, TikTok may still be allowed to operate in India. 
China has already such a, a law in China about China's information security. So if Indian APP operating in China would abide by China's law, China should not punish any of them, as India is doing uh, many Chinese APP operating in India. Okay, thank you for that addition, and thanks so much to all three of you. It's been a wonderful discussion, very stimulating, a, a new peace proposal on the table here that we can think about. Um, and I not only want to thank our three speakers, but also our audience members. Uh, we know you're busy and you now have lots of webinars to choose from on a daily or hourly basis, so we're very pleased that you did join us. Uh, remember, if you want to watch this again or if you want to encourage friends to do so, we will be putting it up on our website within the next week. Um, and speaking of our website, we hope that you will go to it uh, and look at our future programs because we have a lot of interesting programming coming up during the rest of this month. And in November, we have our flagship Chinatown Hall, which we hope all of you will join us for. So again, let me thank our three speakers, my three friends. It's wonderful seeing you here and all together. And we appreciate your time and your illumination for us on what's a, a very troubling issue. Um, but hopefully, Shunding Li's resolution perhaps will help us solve that. Thank you so much, everyone. Bye-bye. And you. have a nice thank weekend. You. And thanks Fisher. for Namaste. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.